Open up in your Bibles this morning, Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and uh, put a finger in Philippians 2, because we might get over there. Luke chapter 9. I love you guys. I really love you guys. It's good to see you. Luke chapter 9, Jesus speaking in verse 22. says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my name's sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word has been for this church an anchor to our souls. It's been a steadfast compass for us. It has been a means by which, Christ, we have discovered more of you through what we have been taught, instructed, rebuked, chastened, encouraged, admonished, nourished on who you are, God. We thank you for your word. We say together that seven years ago, we believed it to be inerrant and infallible, and today we believe it to be inerrant and infallible. We believe it to be the wonderful, ultimate, true word from you. And we ask that today it would be living and active, and that it would function profoundly in our lives. We thank you for moments like these where we celebrate Birthdays, anniversaries, markers, where we can survey life and our lives. We ask that today would be marked by progress into moving deeper with you, Christ, in love, in passion, and a mission for your glory. Holy Spirit, you are the one who has taught us all things. Jesus said, You are the teacher of all things. You're the one who gives to the church gifts as you see fit. You are the one that causes the church to give glory to its head, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, come. Work powerfully in our midst for the glory of Jesus. We pray it together in that beautiful name. And the church all said, amen, amen. What we have here in this text, a pivotal moment in the life of the disciples. What Jesus said there in that first verse, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed, would have been to them that day like a punch in the stomach, like a slap in the face. One of those moments in lives where you, you, you feel like you've had the rug pulled out from underneath you, where everything that you thought previously made sense doesn't quite make sense anymore. It was one of those moments in life because you see, they had just come off some, some glory times with Jesus. Back in the previous chapter, 
They went in a boat to go to the other side at Jesus' command, and Jesus fell asleep in the boat, and there arose this great storm, and the disciples were fearing for their lives, and they called upon the Lord, and the Lord woke up, and with a word, he hushed the storm, he calmed the waves, demonstrating his mastery over all creation. And then when they got to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, there was this demonized guy who had a legion of demons who lived among the tombs and was gashing himself and crying out day and night. Society didn't know what to do with him. They'd given up on him. He had been ostracized. He had no hope. He was among the dead. Jesus, with a word, casts out a legion of demons and does in an instant what no help group no intervention, no nonprofit could ever do. Jesus did in a word, demonstrating his mastery over demons, the devil, and all forms of torment among humanity. After that, Jesus and the disciples returned to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they're going along, and a man came and fell at his feet. His only daughter was dying. And he called upon Jesus to come and heal his daughter. And Jesus said that he would go. And Jesus began to go to the man's house to heal the daughter. And I want to ask you if you believe in miracles today. On Friday, I was in the hospital with my daughter. And she had had her scans to see what was going on with that grapefruit-sized tumor inside of her. And we sat in our oncologist's office, Kate and Daisy and I waiting for the doctor to come and give us a report. And it was a long waiting time in that office. And he opened up the door and he said, come here, come here. And we said, what? He said, come here, come here. He said, there are no words to describe what I need to show you. He took us to his office, another one, and he sat us down in front of a computer screen. And on the right side, he said, this is your daughter's abdomen on July 12th. And he moved this little thing around that moved the display. And he said that huge black mass was her tumor. And it was all you could see inside of her body. And he moved to the left side of the screen. He said, this is your daughter's abdomen today. And we said, what are we looking at? He said, that's the point. In less than a couple months, a tumor that was the size of a grapefruit is now the size of a slice of a very small tangerine inside her body. And I just want to ask you if you believe in miracles. And you can be one here today who attributes that to chemotherapy and doctors and so on and so forth. And I'm, I'm not going to discount that. I'm going to tell you the God of the universe who is infinitely and intimately concerned with the details of your life has chosen to work through people to do miraculous and wonderful things for his glory. And I'm going to tell you that the will of God is always right for your life. And had it been God's will that that tumor was completely and immediately removed, then that's what God would have done.
I know this because I believe the Bible. I believe it to be the inerrant, true, infallible, absolute word of God upon which we can base our lives and our perspective of the whole world. And so this man came and fell at the feet of Jesus and said, my little girl is dying. Jesus began to go to the man's house and a woman came and she pushed through the crowd. There's a crowd around Jesus at this time. She touched him. And Jesus said, who touched me? And the disciples said, what do you mean, who touched you? There's a crowd pressing in around you. A lot of people touched you. He said, no, someone touched me in a different way because I felt power go out of me. And the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years was healed in an instant. Jesus went to the man's house. People had already run up to him and said, she's dead, it's too late, don't, don't worry. Told the father, don't, don't bother Jesus. Jesus came and saw the people weeping and said, why are you weeping? This girl's only sleeping and they mocked Jesus. They laughed at him. And Jesus went in there and said, little girl, get up. And she was raised from the dead. And then the disciples witnessed all this. At this time, Jesus also fed the 5,000. There were 5,000 people there gathered to hear him and to be healed by him. He was healing the multitudes. And it came dinner time, and the disciples said, what are we going to do? And they had five loaves and a couple of fish. And Jesus blessed them and broke them and multiplied them, handed them to the disciples. And they gave them to the people, and the 5,000 were fed. And so they had seen Jesus calm the storm with a word, demonstrate his mastery over all the created realm, cast out a legion of demons with a word, demonstrate his mastery over the devil, demons, torments. They'd seen him raise a girl from the dead, demonstrate his mastery over death, heal the woman with the issue of blood, his mastery over disease, feed the people, his mastery over every need. Man, it was high times. It was good times. Jesus says now in our text, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed. And it would have been like a punch in the gut, a slap in the face that day. We're told that it was hard for the disciples to process. They, they didn't really have a paradigm through which to grasp that. Perhaps if they had given themselves more carefully to a study of Scripture, they would have gotten that because the, the death of Christ is hidden there in the Old Testament. Even the resurrection is hidden there in the Old Testament. Perhaps if they had been more careful students of the Bible, they might have had a paradigm, but we're not going to blame them because we know ourselves, don't we? They just didn't have a paradigm to, to what, what does this mean? How, how could the one who has, has shown his mastery over all the created realm and all the spiritual realm and every need and everything that confronts humanity, how could he suffer at the hands of these petty religious leaders and how could he ever die? They certainly didn't understand that he would raise again. They had never heard of such a thing. It's like a slap in the face and Peter and a parallel account in Matthew said, no, Jesus, don't, listen, don't do that. This, this is not a good idea. You're on top of the world right now. Everyone's following you, doing super cool stuff. This is not a good idea right now. I love you guys desperately. But the church needs a slap in the face. Because what the cross does 
is turns everything on its head. The only way that we have life is through the destruction of the life of Jesus Christ, the surrendering of his life, his death upon the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. Everything then becomes paradoxical. The tone in the tenor, the call of the Christian life itself becomes death. We as Christians now are identified with Jesus Christ in his death, in the cross, and then we are to be identified in his newness of life. And what the church, and I don't only speak to this church, I speak to the church with a capital C, especially in America, is guilty in, is loving our present life too much. In the next verse, Verse 23, Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, if someone wants to be a follower of me, let him deny himself. In essence, and as a New Living Translation says, let him deny his selfish ways and take up his cross daily and then follow me and then be a follower of me. If anybody wants to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and we're all gathered here today calling ourselves followers, but Jesus has put some stringent parameters on that. If somebody truly wants to be my follower, they must deny himself, his selfish ways, the self-life. Pick up his cross, and picking up our cross doesn't mean dealing with hard things in life. It's not what that means. It means an end to self, to the self-life, the life that is consumed with pursuing what it wants its own needs, its own desires. You see, the church, in this church, is guilty of relegating Jesus to a lesser place. He's not an additive. He's not a supplement. My doctor has me on all these supplements. I'm, I'm all jacked up, man. I'm a mess. He says it's stress. I don't think he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> he's got me on all these supplements, and so he's got me on these shakes that I take, and then he just brought me two more different shakes. So I'm supposed to be drinking like 10 shakes a day, and then he's got all these different pills, these giant bottles. I'm supposed to wake up in the morning and take these supplements and add them and another shake and then mix this other one and then take more of these at the evening. And I, I got to tell you, they make me feel better. <laughs> they really do. I'm... I mean, isn't that how we are? If you can give me something I could take and it makes me feel better, I, I like that. So th- he's got me on these supplements and they make, they make me feel better. Jesus is not a supplement. He doesn't exist to make us feel better. I have to testify that it feels better to be forgiven of our sins than to stay in our sins. It does feel better to surrender our lives to his will rather than assert our will. But God does not exist to make you feel better. We exist to give him glory. He created us. He spoke us into existence for his purposes. And then he's blessed us with all these good things that we might enjoy them, but never above him. 
And the church, the capital C in this church, is guilty of making Jesus a supplement in addition to our lives. And Jesus is setting up conditions to follow him, saying we have to deny our selfish ways, take up our cross. It means the end of ourselves. Verse 24, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Whoever wishes to save his life, the New Living Translation says, whoever will seek to hold on to his life. And that's a predicament that we all find ourselves in, one degree to another. And every culture struggles with this. In some cultures, it's just just sustenance. That's all they've really got to hold on to. But that's what they're holding on to. They just want to be able to survive. And we got to be so thankful as Americans that that's not us. It's only the grace of God that we were born here and not in a dump in India. Some people, they're just struggling for sustenance, but they're holding on to their lives just to make it. Other people around the world, they live in an honor culture. And so that's what they're holding on to. That's the life that they're trying to maintain is that reputation, that position, that honor, that place, that caste system, that hierarchy. For us as Americans, it's, it's not just trying to survive, not, not for most of us, that's, that's easy. It's not an honor thing. We're Americans. We don't give a rip what anyone else thinks. For us, it's how many toys we have. It's how much we accumulate, and I'm as guilty as anybody. I'm preaching to us right now. The Spirit through me is preaching to us that we are guilty of trying to accumulate and to hold on to. And the warning of Jesus is, if you spend your life trying to accumulate and to hold on to, you lose your life. You lose everything. But if you'll lose your life for his namesake, then that life will be saved. What does that mean? In some cultures, it means that you die for Jesus. There are men and women who are on trial today as Christians for loving Jesus Others not even on trial, just condemned and sentenced and tormented and tortured. But that's not what it means in our culture. We're not called to die for Jesus, but we are called to live for Jesus. And to lose our lives for his namesake means to surrender all that we are. Every other thing needs to come into submission to the place and the supremacy and the primacy of the person of Jesus Christ. And the truth about us is that very few of us are doing that. I mean, come on, let's not play church, man. Seven years ago, when this church started, I stood on that stage in our building at the Carpinteria campus. I said, and many of you were there, many of you were there. I said, if we're going to play church, I'm not going to do this. Let's not do this. There's other things I'd rather do with my life if we're going to play church. And now we've grown beyond our wildest dreams. We've planted churches that are growing beyond wildest dreams, beyond statistics, beyond expectations, beyond what they should. There's almost 3,000 people here. So many of us are playing games with Jesus. There are men and women around the world who are on trial for being a Christian. 
And I want to ask you, if you were put on trial for being a follower of Jesus Christ today, would you be convicted or acquitted? And going to church doesn't count. Going to church once a week doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to the bar once a week makes you an alcoholic. If someone were to examine your life and look at the empirical evidence, the data, could you be convicted of being a follower of Jesus? Would there be clear, tangible evidence of denying yourself? Would there be some line of demarcation in the history of your life, where it could be said, he took up his cross right here, she took up her cross right here. It's very clear they come a break with self-life. There was a surrendering to the will of God. There was a willful loss of things for his namesake. I think of people like our missionaries in Venezuela, Teresa and Merrill Dick, who... In 1976, moved to Venezuela, went into the jungles, found a people group who had never heard about Jesus, lived among them, learned their language, created an alphabet, began to communicate the story of God, the gospel of God, have seen many converted, seen many indigenous churches planted throughout the region, and are now in the process of translating the whole Bible into their language. They've been there. For 35 years. Man, that's an open and shut case. There was a clear surrender. There was a giving up. There was a going after the will of God. Think about our man, Ron Miller, who moved to Thailand 20 years ago to rescue kids who have been abandoned, forsaken, given up on, sold into slavery, who has started many orphanages, and he's not just caring for them as orphans, but he's discipling them as Christians. And now 20 years later, they're grown men and women and they're going into villages in Cambodia and Laos and and throughout the region preaching the gospel, going to new tribes and churches are being planted and missionaries are being raised up and they're leading more orphanages. There's evidential fruit in these lives. Think of my friend, Dwayne and Amy Dokes, my friends who moved from here to inner city Denver, moved into the projects. Been living in a neighborhood where their kids, they've had to train their children when they hear a certain noise to drop to the ground. There's triple homicides in their neighborhood. Last year, they gave away 900 backpacks. One couple gave away 900 backpacks to kids who would have gone to school with no supplies. This last Thanksgiving, they had over 100 children in their house. A little house. Over 100 people in there. They had prostitutes and crack addicts and drug dealers. You see, they're busted. Man, if you're going to put them on trial to be Christians, they're so busted. There's clear, evidential, tangible evidence. There's a clear mark of surrender of the taking up of the cross. Jesus says, 
Verse 25, what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The ripoff of being an American is the American dream. We've been told from the time that we were young that we need to pursue after certain things. And there's nothing wrong with pursuing those things as long as they are lesser things. There's nothing wrong with pursuing after those things as long as they are lesser things. And this year in my life, God has been teaching me about lesser things. My own family has had to become a lesser thing. My wife and I have had to lay in bed together and cry together and say, in life or in death, we choose that Christ will be glorified in our bodies. Is there a line drawn in your life? Or are you merely going through it, looking to get to the end? Because Jesus says about the end in verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. That's speaking of the judgment. You might be a Christian here and you're saying, I'm a Christian, I'm not not ashamed of Jesus or his words, but I'm merely asking, could, could you be convicted in a court of law of that fact? If we had to look at the evidence, would a judge have to say, no, you seem to be ashamed of Jesus and his words and his call to discipleship and his supremacy? As evidenced by your pursuit of these other things, over and above him. Many have told you, there's a part of me that wants to tell you that that's okay. But I can't tell myself that anymore. And as a pastor of this church, I can't tell this church that. I either need to resign or tell you that if there is not clear evidence in your life of transformation, surrender, and sacrifice for the name and the glory of Jesus Christ, then you very well may be onto hell with a smile on your face. I can't make you feel good about false Christianity. You're saying, wow. Man, it's, it's, it's the birthday. It's the anniversary. <laughs> I mean, really, this today? Glad to have you back in the pulpit, Brett. (laughs) This is a word of the Lord to the church. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit himself? There was an emperor whose name I'm desperately trying to remember. By the year 800, Charlemagne. Charlemagne. You know how I remember that? Because a Steely Dan song came back in my mind. (laughs) Old people got that. Glenn, you got that. No, not old. Never mind. (laughs) King Charlemagne, by the year 800, he had conquered all of Western Europe and you know, he was supposed to be a Christian ruler and this and that. I don't, I don't know about any of that. I'm not going to judge the man's heart. All I know is this, 180 years later, there was another king in the land. 
What Charlemagne had done at that point was unprecedented, the way he'd united Western Europe. He, he laid the foundation for the future of Europe. He had improved the quality of life. He had furthered the cause of Christianity. He had done it in unique ways and also in bad ways. I don't want to judge the man's life. All I know is 180 years later, there was another king who went to exhume Charlemagne, open up his tomb to raid the riches. And Charlemagne was sitting there in his throne still, a skeleton with a crown upon his head, surrounded with riches, a Bible on his lap, open to the Gospels, and his bony finger resting on the verse, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit himself? 20 years from now, statistically speaking, our church will probably be in decline. Might not be true, but that's the way these things generally go. But looking at all your beautiful faces 20 years from now, most of you will not be in decline. Most of you will still be alive. And I want you to think today, what will your reputation be in 20 years? Some of you looking at your faces, you're goners in 20 years. And I want all of us to think together, what will be our epitaph? What will be the saying that is put on our headstone? What will be the testimony of our tomb? Will we have lived for Christ and surrendered all? I know that Christ is calling more people to the inner cities than are going. I know he's calling more people to the broken and the poor and the marginalized. I know he's calling more people to give away a million dollars this year than are doing it. I know he's calling more people to the the unreached in the 1040 window, in South America, in the jungles. I know he's calling more than are going. What will the testimony of your life be? You see, many of you are like Demas. Demas is only mentioned two times in the New Testament. Once in the book of Colossians as being with Paul. He's hanging out with Paul. He's on mission with Paul. And then again in 2 Timothy at the, at the end of Paul's life, Paul is writing to Timothy for Timothy to bring some of his stuff. And he says, by the way, Demas has abandoned me, loving this present world. Demas was a person who was once on mission who was once living for the glory of God. But the cares of the world came out and choked the concern, came and choked the concerns of God, the word of God, the truth of God out of his life. He abandoned the mission. If that man never repented, the story of his life on his gravestone was a tragic one. And the key issue here is the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who appropriates appropriates the benefits of the cross to our lives. And we have in America a church that is emaciated when it comes to the person of the Holy Spirit. We need more of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need to become men and women who would fall on our face and beg for the power of God to come upon us to form in us a heart of surrender a heart of yield, a heart of sacrifice, a heart that is more radical than it is safe. Dear friend of mine is in Rome right now. 
she's touring around. She's on the trip of a lifetime going all through Europe. And she sent me a text from Italy the other day about her adventures. And I kind of feel like a father toward her. And I texted back, be safe. And I thought of it. I said, what does that mean? As a father, is that what I want to impart to my daughters? Is that the message? Hold on and be safe and get through? That's not the message. The message isn't to be safe. The message is to be radical. And so I deleted that and I said, be safe, but be more radical than you are safe. (laughs) And that's what Jesus is saying in the Gospels. If anyone wants to follow me, He's got to deny himself his selfish ways, pick up his cross, and follow me. It's being more radical than safe. And the lie of the American dream is that we all deserve to be safe. There's nothing safe about true Christianity. We've created a different Christianity that's very safe. I'm tired of it. I want to be able to say with Paul, I, don't, I haven't gotten there yet. I want to be able to say with Paul in Philippians 3, verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I'm asking that as a church we would begin to seek the Holy Spirit in such a way that he would make Jesus bigger to us. Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will testify of me and he will glorify me. I'm asking us now, seven years into this church, one year for the Ventura campus, that we become a people who are more concerned, more desirous of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the mission and the glory of Christ. That we ask God to begin to do in our lives whatever it would take to make us more like Jesus more conformed into that image. And I'm wanting to do this with you guys. God has done more than we ever thought through this church by his grace and for his glory. But I don't want to do the next seven years the same way. By his grace and for his glory, I want to be a little more radical I want to love people a little bit more and things a little bit less. I want to give more of myself away to what God wants to do. I want to be more surrendered to his will and his purposes. I want to love Jesus more. And I'm hoping that there's a church that wants to do this too, that wants to value Jesus more than we ever have before that wants to get radical for the Lord. It's hard for us because of where we are, our affluency, our culture. It's harder for us than it is for the Christians in China. They're forced into a radical context. 
Pastors and leaders in India, they're forced into a radical context. They're, they're being burned. Their families are being murdered. They're forced into it. We're in a far more dangerous situation. We're nearly forced into complacency by the privilege that we have. I don't want to live that way. God has shown me this year that that's, that's not okay. I value Jesus more than my wife more than my son, more than my daughter, more than my own life. And it's one thing to say that. I want to live that. But I'm not meant to do it alone. We're meant to do that in community. And the issue, as I said a moment ago, and here's why I close, is the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. We need an experience like Pentecost. You see, there was a, there was a line of demarcation. Peter went from a guy who denied Jesus when a little girl would ask him to one who would preach Jesus in front of any, anybody and who was ultimately crucified upside down on a cross for his belief in Jesus. The issue was the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. I think today is a perfect day for us to be baptized fresh in the Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask Dominic to come up right now. Dom, I want you to sing uh, All Who Are Thirsty, the verse and everything. I know you didn't plan it. And then we'll go into the next songs. I know it's in a different key, but you're anointed. You can do it. (laughs) I I want us to think about ourselves in the song. Let's draw a line today. Are you thirsty for the power of the person of the Holy Spirit because you know you've not exalted Jesus Christ enough in your life? You know he's on the periphery. You need help with that. We're not called to religion. We're not being made to feel guilty. We can't muster it up. This is not some excitement thing. We can't like force it somehow. That's why I'm saying we need the Holy Spirit to come upon us because you can't fake this stuff. You can't fake this. And I need and we need more of the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. So if today, I don't know what this is going to mean for our futures, but if today you want to get radical and ask for that, I'm going to ask Christians that want that to come forward and get on their knees on the carpets up here. You're asking for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you. We're going to have pastors and prayer team come and lay hands on you. We're going to lay hands on one another and just pray that the Holy Spirit would fall on us. Don't do this as some joke thing. Don't do this because someone else is going to do this. If you truly believe you need Jesus to be more exalted in your life and you don't see how you can get there, you need the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. If you're for real about that and you're willing to sacrifice and surrender, if you're willing to be broken, if you're willing to give up your life, your own children, your own comfort, whatever Christ would call you to for his glory not because he needs anything from you, but because he's after your heart and your heart is wrapped around your reputation and your money and your identity and your comfort. If you're willing to be broken, then get on your knees before the Lord. If you physically can't get on your knees, the Lord knows that, but I think he might heal you today. Do you believe in miracles? I believe in miracles today. There's no way to identify who's on the prayer team and who's not at this point. You're going to have to all be Christians and lay your hands on each other right now. Just lay your hands on one another and start to pray. Just begin to pray that the Holy Spirit would fall upon us. Begin to cry out to the Lord. Lord, give us brokenness. I'm praying now, Lord, give us brokenness. Lord, break through the hardness of our hearts. 
Lord, give us tears of repentance. Lord, take us to a deeper place than we've ever been before. God, show us who Christ is. Holy Spirit, come and exalt Jesus among us. Lord, teach us to pray. Church, pray and pray loud. Call out upon the Lord. It's just us. Now's the time to ask the Lord.